And the more we have studied it, the more it has become clear that this is a once in a hundred year event. Um, there is nothing in our data sets, in our experience, that is anything like it. Um, and that's because the spread of the disease, the impact it has had on people's behavior, but also in the responses of governments has been extraordinary. You know, who would have thought six months ago that we would have our borders being closed? It's just not something that we would normally think about. So this is really quite big stuff. And what we've also seen is because of the last few recessions, we used up a lot of our big tools. So suddenly we've arrived at this big downturn and a lot of the usual ways of doing things are not available to us. So cutting interest rates is actually really hard to do because interest rates are already so low. Um, governments can't really give tax cuts and those kinds of things because right now it's not about tax cuts, it's just that we can't go out to do stuff. So it's, it's a really strange kind of environment. And you know, I've seen quite a lot of ch chat with uh, my clients and a lot of people that I speak to that, oh, now that the restrictions are over, everything's back to normal, right? Well, yeah, I don't think so. Um, it's because I think we are seeing uh, different impacts of this COVID-19 thing over time. And I think there's gonna be three phases. We've just been through the first phase, which was kind of you know, from March to June, most of June, which was the health response. So the initial response was about shutting down borders, closing things up, and just making sure that we are able to uh, keep the virus under control. The second part is, as we emerge out of it, what's the kind of new level of activity that we might see, but also how many jobs and businesses might be lost because, you know, when you've been through one, two months with no income, despite wage subsidies and other borrowing, a lot of weaker and smaller businesses might still fail. So we're probably going to see that second wave coming through. And then there is a recession proper. So a normal recession usually takes one to two years. Um, what we've seen in the last couple of months is this very compressed health shock. And that's not the recession, that's the health shock. The real recession is more about what happens because you know lots of people have lost jobs, because exports are being affected, and those kinds of things. And we become more cautious in the way that we behave. And it's this cautiousness that pervades and that has the biggest impact in the way that, um, uh, in the way that the economy performs. And so from a housing perspective, the recessions are quite important in that what happens is we all become more careful. And when we're careful, we're less likely to buy and sell houses. We're less likely to move houses. We're le less likely to see younger people be able to get access to higher incomes, uh, better jobs, access to mortgages and being able to buy. So what we tend to find is renting tends to increase during a recession. Um, not that it's not been increasing anyway, uh, but it tends to sort of lift that even more. And one of the big uh, disappointments of recessions, I guess, is that the fundamental problem in New Zealand, of course, is that we don't build enough houses. And when we see a recession, quite often what we see is house building also falls. So the uh, underlying problem of housing shortages only intensifies further uh, through this period. And there's been this other kind of thing that's happening in the background, which is really important for us um, from a property side, both for renters and for landlords, is the balance is move, slowly moving towards renters in terms of more rights for renters and all those kinds of things, which of course you know that I've been long advocating for. And these rental reforms will mean that being a landlord is becoming more difficult. It's becoming more like a business with lots more regulations. So it, it, has, it is a very much a, um, a changing backdrop that we're going to see over the coming weeks, coming months, and coming years. So part of it's about COVID-19 and the recession that follows, 
but also there is some longer term structural changes that I think will have quite a big impact. Now, you know, for me, the last couple of weeks, um, it's kind of been uh, moving between being really happy and encouraged that the world and New Zealand seems to be getting on top of the virus. Um, and then suddenly over the course of the last week, it's become this extreme concern with the rising numbers of cases that we're seeing in countries like the US, in parts of Australia, in parts of China. And so a lot of the countries we trade very uh, closely with and are reliant on from an uh, economic perspective, um, they're starting to see increases in the number of cases. And um, you know, it just shows you how difficult it is to control infectious diseases. Um, because in places like uh, parts of the US, they had been opening up for some time from, a, from the early part of May. We're now starting to see the consequence of that in increasing infections. And so what it's likely to mean is we're gonna see this uneven impact in terms of which countries are opening up when, but more importantly, how confident people are to go out there and resume normal life, whether they're spending, or buying or investing, all that stuff gets put on ice when people are fearful of dying and of catching an infectious and horrible disease. Sorry to interrupt. If you enjoy this content, make sure you subscribe so you do not miss the next one and hit this like button to let me know that you want more information like this. Thank you. And so far, New Zealand has essentially, I think, uh, done really well. You look at Australia and New Zealand, our cases are very, new cases are very low. We've had very few deaths uh, relative to the size of our population. Compared to the US and the U UK, you know, their, their deaths are somewhere in the, you know, if we had followed their kind of pattern, our death rate would be, our number of deaths would be 19%, 32% higher. Huge numbers, huge, huge numbers. So this, the, the disease is going to shape quite a lot of the volatility. And I don't think it's going to be even. It's not going to be, we got it under control and everything is fine because the vaccine is not near. You know, it's probably going to be at least another 12 months before we get that. So we need to get used to the idea of living with closed borders, um, lots of variability in global markets, global economies. So it's going to be a very different world to what we've been used to in our lifetimes. Now, the very first um, part of dealing with this uh, economic crisis, this health crisis, was really about the trying to get on top of the virus, right? And so we saw these huge restrictions being placed around the world. New Zealand had some of the most restrictive regimes through that period of April and most of May. And essentially what happened was we closed the economy down, arguing that if we stop the transmission of the disease and we can stop it at the border, notwithstanding all the you know, debacles at the border in the last few weeks, um, then we should be able to open up the domestic economy and things will bounce back to a higher level than the alternative. And what we saw was um, even during the period of the lockdown, there were lots of other countries that also had much uh, the same kind of reduction in spending and uh, people's movements, um, even though the government wasn't mandating that kind of restrictions. And that was because people were fearful of the spread of the disease that was happening in the country. So in places like the UK, Ireland, we had seen very similar levels of uh, reduction in driving, walking, going to the shops, as we had seen in New Zealand, even though they had lower levels of restrictions. So I guess what I'm trying to get across is government mandated restrictions are only one part of it. If there is a disease that's rampaging out there, then people are going to be far more careful and the economy is not going to go back to normal. 
And that's really what we see. So if you look at the left-hand chart, that just shows you the growth in consumer spending in New Zealand in the blue line and in the US in the gray line. And in the US, um, they had not as big a drop in spending as we did during our lockdown, but the recovery since they opened up has been far more gradual. And that's really been twofold because you know they've had huge job losses in the US, um, but also because the disease is still spreading through the country. And as a result, people are fearful of going out and spending and engaging in economic activity like we are by and large doing in New Zealand. So I've been tracking the New Zealand economy on a daily basis since COVID-19 hit. And essentially what we saw was, um, you know, there was a very swift reaction from both households and businesses. So we saw people going out less, spending less, you know, not eating out and moving towards buying more stuff from supermarkets all the things that you'd expect as people sheltered at home. And then as we went into level one and as we opened up the economy, we've seen things gradually coming back, but not evenly. So even though our spending and our economy is largely back to normal on average, there are still pockets of it that are very different. So for example, um, you know, people are still not eating out as much. So the spending on cafes and food services is still down about 15% from this time last year. So it just shows you that some of those, um, some of the behavior shifts that took place during the lockdown is persisting. But what's really encouraging is from the business side of things, we're seeing businesses are advertising for jobs and there are more vacancies coming through. Um, and that was one of our big fears that uh, we would see continued job losses. And we've already seen a lot of job losses in the last little while. And you know, the more businesses are able to stabilize and get back to normal, the better it is in terms of uh, uh, putting a bottom under the recession that we see. Um, in some ways, the recession that we have experienced so far is already unprecedented, right? Um, if I think about things like job losses, which I think is a really good way to think about the economy, right? So if the economy is going well, more people have work. If the economy is not going well, then fewer people have work. And when we look at the numbers on unemployment benefits, for example, um, relative to the population, it's now at a higher level than we had at the GFC. So, you know, all those gains that we made during the decade after the global financial crisis and that recession, um, that's all disappeared in the space of two months. And the scale is quite extraordinary. And um, here is the context, right? So in the last couple of months during that period of the lockdown and whatnot, we lost about 45,000 jobs in New Zealand. In the entire course of the global financial crisis, we lost 80,000 jobs. So we've already seen, you know, we still got the recession proper to start, but we've already lost more than half of all the jobs we had during the during that last last crisis. And so what that means is, um, you know, when we think about the economy and what happens next, it's probably going to be something that is well outside the realms of anything that we have experienced. For those of you who, who have gray hair, you'll recall what happened during the late 80s and early 90s. That was a pretty tough time. And that's the kind of uh, a frame of reference of what is likely to happen in the next one to two years. So it is probably going to be quite big and it's going to take us a little while to come out of it. Um, but you know, I have this very depressing effect on people, so you, you want to keep that in a bit of context. But while we've had this massive amount of job losses, uh, you can see on the right-hand side in the blue line, which is New Zealand, the extent of job losses in other parts of the world have been much bigger. So both in places like Australia, UK, and the US, they've lost way more jobs relative to the population than New Zealand has, has done. So 
you know, there's a lot of kind of very unique things that are taking place within um, within uh, different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Um, so yes, it's an exceptional recession and it's going to be super painful. But I'm so glad that we're here because New Zealand is looking like it's going to go, go through this recession better than many of our peers. Now, <clears throat> having said that, it's not like um, it's over, right? Um, I've been talking to a lot of businesses that went through the, survived through the lockdown. But even though they didn't have any revenue, they still had the wage subsidy, they borrowed, they cut costs, they did everything they could to sustain their businesses, which was fantastic. But as we're coming back to normal, what we're finding is not every industry is coming back to where it was. So there are parts of the economy where spending and revenue is still a lot lower than it was. And particularly for those very small businesses that tend to kind of um, operate at the margins, right? A lot of small businesses tend to be quite hand to mouth and they don't necessarily have lots of reserves, lots of money uh, put away on the side. For those businesses, this is very much an existential risk. So we are going to see some businesses fail, but it's not gonna spike up all of a sudden. That's because the government's got all these policies like the wage subsidies, uh, the, you, know, you can borrow money from the government, um, they, you can trade while insolvent. So all of these things mean that the, the impact in terms of business closures and job losses are probably going to spread out over a longer period of time. Again, that's a little bit unusual to normal economic times when we would find that if the economy is slowing and the businesses is not viable, the business will close. But instead, we're going to see this kind of zombification of certain businesses. Um, and that means you know, they're going to be around. They might employ one or two people. Um, they're not going to shut down and they're not going to really grow. So it's going to be kind of a strange environment. This second wave is this kind of this period of stagnation when not much happens. And the impact across different parts of New Zealand is going to be very var variable. So um, this is kind of my assessment of how different parts of the economy will, uh, will be affected. And it's not surprising that one of the biggest um, uh, risk industries is tourism because our borders are shut and those people just can't come into our country, right? So even if all of us uh, continue to spend, uh, go on our holidays and instead of going overseas, we did it at home, um, the tourism sector would still be down by 25%. Um, and in reality, it's probably gonna be more than that because during a recession when job losses are pretty big, we're all being a bit more careful, we're more likely to stay at home. Um, that tourism sector is really going to feel the brunt of this, um, this recession. And we're also seeing you know, a lot of vulnerability in industries that are relying on discretionary spending, like media and telecoms, right? You're less likely to buy the new iPhone. You're likely to wait for a bit longer. Um, you're less likely to get advertising because people are being more careful. In the property sector, we tend to find um, that uh, the amount of turnover, so buying and selling of property comes right down and people become more cautious. So we see a lot of pain in that sector. Um, people being, be, become more careful about spending money. So they don't spend as much money on their accountant and all those other bits and pieces. Uh, we tend to find quite a big impact on construction and retail because people are more fearful of investing. So you might, you know, you might wanna build a house, but you think, well, you know, I don't know if, um, if the market's gonna be very strong or um, if, if I will have a job, so maybe I'll delay for a bit longer. Or it might be because um, the bank won't lend you money. So there's a whole bunch of things that go on during a downturn. It doesn't affect everybody, but on the aggregate, what we tend to find is um, spending on parts of the economy take a bigger hit than others. So 
you know, if you're thinking about your particular industry, your particular um, job or particular business, um, I think this is a helpful way to think about it. But even within this, we're going to find some businesses and some some regions that might do better than others. So I was quite intrigued to see um, that in places like Palmerston North and through the central part of the North, uh, North Island, uh, retail spending is up about three to five percent, which is extraordinary considering um, you know, we've, we're, we're still going through this big kind of shock. Um, but what it tells you is that in many parts of the provincial economy, which had all these essential businesses, essential industries anyway, the lockdown didn't actually have a big effect on them. So there are parts of New Zealand where we will see a quite variable impact in the way that they behave and the impact it might have on their, on their business and their economy. <clears throat> now, what we are preparing for, what I'm preparing for is not so much what's already happened because, you know, that was kind of uncontrollable, right? We had this big health shock and there were varied uh, responses from different parts of the world. But now we're heading into that kind of the recession proper. That's the third wave of this economic uh, shock. And this one is not going to be like the big tsunami that we saw with the health crisis, you know, that shut down everything kind of slumping, all that kind of stuff. It's not going to be like that. This is something that's going to happen over weeks and months, right? Um, and that's very much about living in a world where our borders are probably going to be closed for a while. Um, and all the talk about bubbles and whatnot, I think, are extraordinarily premature. Um, that's because there's a whole bunch of motivations. One is, of course, around the health thing. But also, there's going to be a lot of resistance to opening up the borders so that New Zealanders can go and spend their holiday money overseas and deprive local tourism of that money. So there's going to be a whole bunch of political, economic and health reasons why I think border restrictions are going to be pretty tight for some time to come. The big fear for, for us is while we've been through this first half of this year in pretty good shape, um, as the global economy slows and it is slowing and it's going to be one of the biggest global recessions that we've seen, it's going to affect on exports. And typically what that means is things like forestry exports and manufactured exports, we sell less of that stuff, but also we get less money for them because people, there is just less confidence in the global economy. Something that's unusual around compared to other recessions is that um, we're, we're seeing this supply chain disruption. So if you're a manufacturer based in, uh, based in Auckland, um, you might find that you can't get access to things like um, uh, computer chips or motherboards because the production of that was disrupted in, in China and in Taiwan and other places. So the supply chain disruptions can also lead to uh, inability to do your business and do your work. And we're seeing things like trade barriers coming up. So between China and the US, which is a really big deal because what happens there really has a big impact in the way that, uh, way that we perform through the economy. Uh, we've also benefited from all the hoarding of food and some products that's gone on. Um, but that means that there might be a bit of a hole on the other side, as we find that people are still not going to restaurants and those kinds of things because of recessions, because of health fears, and that can affect our trade sector. But the thing that really is going to affect us, um, and for most of us, I think this is where the economy becomes real, is the impact on the labor market. So we've already had 45,000 job losses. We're probably going to see another 100,000 job losses in the next 12 to 18 months. These are very big numbers. That's a lot of people who won't have, uh, won't have jobs. So in the context of the entire population, in the last count, we had about 2.7 million people employed. So it's not like 
the majority of people are going to lose jobs. But it means that it creates a climate of fear. And in that climate of fear, we tend to see lots of different um, changes in behavior, which is really what a recession is about. It's when we're being careful in the way we do things. So we see, for example, uh, people being more careful about how much money they spend and where they spend that money. So you'll tend to spend less money on holidays. You'll try and sort of save, you know, save more. Um, you're probably going to eat out less. You're probably going to spend less money on luxuries and on discretionary products. And um, also, it has an impact on the way that businesses and banks behave. So businesses during a recession will be fearful of increasing their investments or hiring more people. And banks tend to be much more fearful about lending, particularly to young folk and first-time buyers and those kinds of things, um, and to construction firms. So that's where those uh, feedback loops come in. And that's why it tends to be quite hard for us to come out of a recession, is everybody's kind of doing this collective sitting on hands, and everybody's waiting for somebody else to make the first move. Ironically, during a recession is actually a really great time to get stuff done. So for example, if you want to build a house or do some repairs or do whatever, there's no better time than a recession because you know those traders you couldn't get a hold of, they're available and they'll give you a sharp price. And you know that's a real nice change from what we've been used to for the last little while. But for me, the biggest uh, fear right now is the resilience that we have seen in the last little while in our exports. So you can see on the left-hand side, our exports have fallen a bit, but not very much. Uh, whereas our imports have had a massive whipsaw, huge volatility. And you know that just shows you what's going on in terms of the initial health crisis meant that uh, lots of factories were closed and lots of things just couldn't happen. Uh, but demand for our products, particularly for food products, remained very resilient. But of course, things like forestry got a big hit because they weren't building buildings in China and that kind of stuff, which is where most of our logs go. So this trade disruption will be a bit of a theme over the next little while. So unlike normal recessions where most parts of the country can, and the economy kind of move together, this time around, what we're seeing is this very uneven kind of response. So the, the health response, the lockdown and stuff, was much more damaging to the urban economies. But the recession proper, particularly the global recession, is probably going to be, probably will be much more damaging for the rural sector. So, you know, we're probably going to see this kind of this uneven pace of the economy over the next little while. And it's important for us to not kind of get too caught up in headlines. Because I think that happens a lot when we're talking about the economy. We kind of go, here is the New Zealand economy. Well, you know, I'm one unit of the economy, you are one unit of the economy, and we are experiencing entirely different things. So you've got to think a little bit about what's happening within your circle of uh, your family or your region or your industry or your sector, because I think the performance and the risks and opportunities will be very, very different. Now, you know, I suspect a lot of this stuff is really depressing you guys, and um, it is a bit frightening. But at the same time, what we're seeing is, um, unlike what we had seen during the Great Depression or during the GFC, there seems to have, you know, we have learned the lessons of that. And we know that policymakers need to do a hell of a lot to try and boost the economy and put a floor under the economy and as much as possible. So we're seeing that with uh, government spending. So the government has unleashed huge amounts of spending, both in terms of their kind of initial response to try and keep people in jobs, uh, uh, reduce and avert business failures, but also the Reserve Bank. It's cut interest rates to practically zero, and it's going to be printing money, which means that interest rates are going to stay low for the foreseeable future. There is very little risk in my mind that interest rates are going to go up. 
So it's, a, it's increasingly going to be a very good time to help pay down your debt if you need to, but it will also be a great time for those who have assets and savings to be able to borrow more money because banks are going to really want those people who have who are good credit risk compared to first home buyers and a lot of other folk because uh, what we're going to find is during a recession, banks are fair with their friends, so they kind of pull things away, but they still want to lend and they want to lend only to the lowest risk people. One of the big conversations uh, that we're going to have over the course of the coming years is the amount of debt that we're uh, taking up. So if you think about the response to COVID-19, it's just been so big, right? And not just here, all around the world. Um, it's going to add huge amounts of debt to our, uh, to our nation's balance sheet. And so our government borrowing to GDP is going to rise to the kind of highs that we, have, we had seen in the late 80s and early 90s. And a lot of you, some of you, I suspect, will remember what it was like in that period. New Zealand had a gun held, held to its head, right? We had to reform and we had to restructure our debt because we just were, we had too much and we simply could not cope. And there was a whole bunch of other reasons, uh, institutional problems with Think Big and all, all those other things that we had in New Zealand. Now, we don't have the same urgency to pay back the debt this time around. And that's because of what's happening on the right-hand side. Last time, we had very high levels of debt and very high interest rates. And some of you will remember you had mortgage rates that were well in excess of 10%, right? Some of you, some of you would have even had 20% interest rates. Whereas this time around, we've got the opposite. Even though we've got record levels of borrowing, we're going to have record low levels of money being spent on servicing that debt. So debt is so cheap right now. And because the Reserve Bank is going to keep suppressing those interest rates, um, I don't think we're going to see this name, the same level of fear and panic on government borrowing as we did in the 80s and 90s. So whatever we do on reforming our debt outlook is going to be fairly gradual. And I think that's the right thing to do, because right now the focus has to be about supporting the economy as much as possible. In future, we're going to have to think about how we pay that back. And I think that should be a collection of things, right? We should have slightly higher taxes, we should have a bit more inflation, and we should probably have some sort of wealth tax or other tax to be able to kind of do that stuff. But in reality, um, there is no urgency to deal with this, even though I think there are some people out there who are fearful because they remember what it was like in the 80s and 90s. So what does it mean for housing? So my economic narrative is very much around New Zealand went into this recession in relatively good shape. Um, we had pretty good economic growth. We had good population growth. Um, we had good export growth. But now a lot of those things are at risk, right? We're not going to have much population growth because our borders are closed. Uh, we're not going to have much um, export growth because the global economy is recession. And of course, we're going to have a domestic recession as well. So what it means for housing is that when people are losing jobs and when banks are being fearful, careful, we tend to see a lot less buying and selling. So if you're out there looking for a, buy, a place to buy, I think you're going to find there are very few properties listed for sale. That's because most people in New Zealand have owned their homes for a while and there is no great urgency to sell. And as a result, what we tend to find is, um, you know, the, the stock of listings kind of just disappears. It also means that there's going to be a lot more of our population who remain renters because we're likely to lose jobs. We're likely to see much, find it much harder to borrow money as first-time buyers. And that means that progression is delayed. And that's really what recessions do. 
it's kind of you know, arrested development, right? It, everything gets pushed out. So uh, you might, you know, we tend to find that, you know, people tend to form families later. They tend to have, well, they tend to have kids later. They tend to get into relationships later. Marriage rates tend to be deferred. Um, we tend to see, you know, the getting into home ownership gets deferred. So all of those normal kind of life things get deferred because of that, that economic cloud that's hanging over them. And while all of this stuff is happening, I think we're going to see continued increase in regulation because we've moved well into the other side where the majority of New Zealand adults are now renting. And so the political pressure has been very much around reforming rentals to increase the, uh, the representation and the rights of renters. And that means that uh, we're going to see um, you know, the whole rental sector becoming more complex and more like the kind of businesses that are regulated um, than it has been in the last little while. Now, we're kind of in this strange situation where we've had extraordinary house price increases in New Zealand over the course of the last you know, few decades, but really from the early 2000s. And now that house prices have risen so much, um, it's very unlikely that we're going to see the kinds of forced sales or stress sales that we have seen in the US, for example, during the global financial crisis. And so what it means is that we've kind of, we're stuck with this unaffordable housing, very expensive housing. Um, at the same time, it's very hard to see this kind of this rush of people selling at discounted uh, rates when mortgage rates are so low and banks are doing everything that they can to extend credit or extend repayment terms and all those other bits and pieces. So what we saw during the recession was, yes, during crisis, we can see some fall off in uh, house prices. It tends to be fairly gradual, um, but it's, it's, it's really around the behavior of banks and people that changes. And what we find is people become cautious, they don't buy and sell as much, banks extend, they extend the terms and all those conditions and make sure that there are as few mortgagee sales as possible. So we are very different from other countries like the US where we see sharp corrections in housing markets. In New Zealand, we kind of go into complete and utter stagnation. And I think what this is going to mean is um, this trend that we've seen in home ownership rates. Um, so this is share of households that who own their own homes. And that kind of trended up from that post-war era until about a peak in 91. It's been kind of trending down since then. And I suspect this is this trend will only speed up a little bit more. You know, what we find is recessions kind of tend to delay that ability to get into homes even more. So, um, you know, the, the ranks of renters tends to swell through this, uh, through, 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 the, through the recessions that we, we experience. So we're probably going to see this increasing demand and it's going to happen across a lot of cohorts, right? Uh, we're seeing people who are renting as not just about you know, the old school, when you really thought about renters as being people who are going to university or very young, but now we're seeing it across all age groups, including into retirement. So there's going to be many more segments um, in terms of the, the potential renters and customers that we might see, but also the demands on politicians and uh, regulatory reform, I think is going to be, remain pretty intense. And the thing that um, was going really well uh, over the course of the last few years was after the GFC, we saw this big drop off in house building. And you can see that on the left-hand chart, that's the number of annual consents for houses in New Zealand. So we kind of went through a five-year slump. Um, and there was a lot to do with, um, you'll recall, we had all those finance company failures and those kinds of things. So a lot of the access to mezzanine financing and ability to build apartments really disappeared overnight. And it took a long time for us to recover out of that. 
But in the last kind of um, seven, eight years, we've seen a huge rebound. So last year we had record levels of building consents. So, you know, we really needed to maintain that at that level, probably for about a, about a decade to get on top of the housing shortages that we had. It seems very likely that now that we're in a recession, we're probably gonna, we're probably gonna see a drop in house building. And so that underlying housing deficit, housing shortage that we've got is probably going to persist for a while. Now, it's also gonna come in through what happens at the banks, right? So, you know, banks tend to be very cautious during recessions. And that's not surprising because, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where um, you are lending to lots of people that might lead to defaults, right? So you wanna be really, really careful in the way that you spend. But that then worsens the economic cycle. So, um, you know, think about it this way, you know, if the banks are not lending to house, house builders, to builders, then you're gonna have less buildings going up. And if there's less buildings going up, there are fewer people employed in construction and all the related industries. And so you, know, you have this cascading effect that goes right through, right through New Zealand. And that's really what's going to take place. But also what we see is that during downturns, um, we tend to find that uh, banks tend to be far more careful about lending to first home buyers. Um, so we don't have really good data going back in history, but what we, what we have seen in the last few years is because of all the regulatory changes, uh, banks haven't been lending a lot to investors, right? So that segment of the market has been really quite restricted, you know, high deposit rates and all those bits and pieces, but those have now been largely relaxed. Uh, first home buyers and movers. It's, movers are really the big part of the market. So people who already own a home and who are moving to a larger home or a smaller home, that's really where most of the trading seems to happen. But during a downturn in the economy, those the, the movers tend to tend not to move because what we tend to find is, um, you know, if you're if you're fearful of the economic outlook, then you're not going to change your house. You're not going to upgrade to a bigger house or whatever because it just feels a little bit scary. And uh, what we find is the banks don't lend to the first-time buyers because who are first-time buyers? They're young people, usually with small set, small deposits and, relatively speaking, lower incomes. And we know that during recessions, it's young people who tend to lose uh, the most jobs. We also know that their income growth tends to be affected by it. So, you know, we're going to see this kind of this strange environment in the next 12 to 24 months where really the investors will be the, the most lucrative part of the market for banks, which hasn't been the case for the last few years because of regulatory changes, because of the way that banks have been behaving. But I think there's, a, there's going to be a really big shift that takes place in the next couple of years. And again, I think there's some lessons that we can draw in, from the global financial crisis. I mean, and you know, history is only a guide, right? History, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But it gives you a sense of how, how the behavior changes in the housing market during crises and recessions. So you can see um, in that in 2008, so in the left-hand chart, you can say house sales were running at pretty high level and then it just, just drops, right? There's a bit of a dead cat bounce. That's when first home buyers came back. And then it takes a gradual recovery of some years before the number of house sales really picks up. So that's exactly, I think, what's gonna happen this time around as well. We've already seen house sales slow a lot, but that was largely because you couldn't really do much during that period of the lockdown. I suspect that that will catch up quite a lot in the next month or so. But essentially we should expect that there's gonna be fewer houses trading, right? And if you look at what happened to house prices through, the, through that period of the GFC, the global financial crisis, was there's probably about a five year period where house prices fell a bit 
uh, but really went sideways for about five years. And so there was this kind of this uh, window when not much is going to happen in the economy and not much is going to happen in the property market. So there is a window of opportunity for those who have who are not rushed, who are patient, who have capital, who have access to credit. I think they're going to be able to pick up properties at pretty good prices over the next little while. And um, you just want to be a little bit careful about these averages. So this, this house price, for example, is across New Zealand. So it hides a lot of variations across different parts of New Zealand. So coastal property, tourism hotspots, I think are at quite a lot of risk this time around, um, just because we're not going to have the same level of discretionary income and tourism to prop up the demand for those places. So uh, just be careful about not conflating what's happening in um, at the headline level with local submarkets that might have quite different um, behaviors. Um, what we also saw during the global financial crisis, so it was really the impact really came through 2009, 2010. Uh, during that period, what we saw was rents um, were still going up a touch, but the rate of growth really slowed down. And that's not surprising, right? Because people's incomes weren't growing much, fewer people had jobs. So rents tend to be very much tied to incomes. So you know, on average, we would expect rents to grow around 4% a year, 3 to 4% a year. Auckland's a little bit lower than that, but you know, it's more tied to the kind of incomes of the people, how much they're able to pay. And you can see on the right-hand side, what, 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 what happened in the last few years is um, we've seen interest rates falling away and we've seen the rents relative to house prices holding up at slightly better levels. So I think on average, the gross rental yield for a rental property in the last year, last 12 months was around 4%. Um, but you still have to take a you know, cost of rents, uh, rates, insurance, maintenance, and those kinds of things. So um, the investment um, incentives or the, is, is there, but you have to earn it, right? So you've got to make sure that you reduce your uh, vacancy, that you get gradual and regular increases in rents. Um, and all of those things are really important in terms of making sure that if you buy a rental property, and you, you have an investment property, that those returns are very much in the long run. And so we might face a period of the next probably five years where capital gains are gonna be very hard to come by. Uh, rental growth are gonna be mod is gonna be modest. So it's very much about making sure you minimize that vacancy and um, you know, increase rents that are just enough to give you a, a, a income growth, but not enough to uh, push away your, rent, your tenants. Now, you know, one of the things that's taking place and has been taking place since the early 90s is, of course, there are more people who are becoming landlords, right? So, well, there are more properties that are owned by landlords because more people are renting. And this, uh, this trend looks like it's going to continue, not only because of just the sort of overall trend that we're seeing, but because a recession tends to mean that job losses and income risks mean that fewer young people are able to get into houses. But also, I think we're going to see this across a wide range of people. So this Rental growth is going to be about more people, but also in terms of different cohorts um, and also in terms of different purposes, right? So I think we're gonna see a lot more people using it for work, for retirement and all those kinds of things. When it comes to our uh, existing cohort of landlords, they're getting older. So um, I don't think just because they're reaching retirement age, you should expect a flood of properties to come on to the market. Instead, what we're likely to see and what we see in the data is they're much more likely to hang on to it. They might sell one house to buy their retirement property or the retirement village unit or whatever, but by and large, people will hang on to their properties, use the income from their uh, rental properties 
and they will more often than not uh, use their um, use their rental portfolio and their assets as bequests to their children. So. Um, what we're going to find is as our landlords are aging, we're going to see a lot more use of professional uh, property management. And that's been quite an interesting thing in the data set. Um, over the course of the last three to four years, we've seen a really big increase in the use of property managers. And that's really because I think twofold. One is this demographic thing where a lot of the landlords are getting older and it's getting harder for them to do that DIY approach to uh, rental management. But the second part, which I think is going to be quite important, is the increasing regulatory complexity that's coming in. So we're going to see a lot more regulation coming in from the government. Um, and even if there's a change of government, I don't think these things will be unwound. So uh, essentially, being a landlord is becoming more like being a business. And it means that you're going to have to work harder or you're going to have to use professionals to be able to do that. So I think both of them are absolutely legitimate approaches for those very big landlords who have lots of uh, properties. You know, they are setting up a more of an office approach, more of a professional approach to doing that stuff. And we're seeing a lot more people starting to use um, use property managers to manage their uh, manage their rental properties. And this, I think, is going to shape quite a lot of the way that we rent in the next little while. Um, you know, with COVID-19, what we're seeing is this there's this kind of this shock that's taking place and that might speed up some of the changes and trends that we've been observing over the course of the last little while. So before we open it up to question, I might just sort of go back to where we started. I think for me, you know, every economic phase, every economic crisis comes with risks and opportunities. Um, this one is bigger than anything that we have experienced in the past and uh, very much once in a hundred years. So don't be complacent about thinking that you know what's going to happen because none of us know this is so new it also means that um, there's a lot more uncertainty that uh, what governments and central banks and others do might not come through to an economic impact in the way that we might have seen in the past so that just means there is a lot more um, unknowns in the way the economy will unfold so far to me my base case is there's probably three phases to this recession the first one which is the kind of the shutdowns of the economy the health response is probably over the second phase, I think, is where we are now. We're starting to see some of the stress of businesses that went through the lockdown and are still not back to the previous norm. The third is really the bit that we're waiting for, the recession that's going to unfold with job losses, exports, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is going to happen, and that will kind of unfold over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And we should start to come out of that as we work through that, but also as we find a vaccine and treatment for COVID-19 and things start to open up. During the recession, I think what we're going to find is there's a lot more trading within the housing market. So it's going to, there's going to be fewer properties, but those that are on the market are probably going to find more motivated sellers. So there's going to be more opportunities coming up. I think banks are also going to be very much about lending to people who have equity and who have uh, who have who, who will have rental properties with good good rentals. And we know that because of the recession, more people will be renting over the next uh, next little while. And the long-term issues just haven't gone away, right? Whether it's around housing supply or around rental reforms, these are things that will persist because those are structural issues. If anything, my fear is the housing shortages that we were slowly starting to chip away at is probably going to worsen over the course of the next little while because that's what recessions tend to do. Uh, but at the same time, I think we will see increasing regulation, which means that being a landlord and being, a, being in the industry is going to be more complicated and you're going to have to really be very professional to deal with that.
So I might um, stop my prepared remarks there and um, we can pick up some of your questions. I can't hear you, David. All right, sorry about that. Thank you, uh, Shamia Bell. That was excellent and uh, very inspiring. And it was good to see that we've had already one person nominate you as the next financial minister for the country. Um, I won't ask you to comment on that. Uh, but we've had some excellent questions that have come through. We'll start with this one, please, if we could. If the debt uh, on investment property, if you have debt on it, and the interest rates being as low as they are, should one who has reserves pay off that debt or use the funds that they have with the low rates to invest in other investment properties? Yeah, really good question. And um, the answer is going to be a little bit hedged because I can't give you financial advice. Um, so it is very much dependent on your personal financial situation. But let me put it this way. If the rent on your property is more than covering your mortgage and outgoings, then you should not pay down your debt. You should be using your reserves to add to your property portfolio. If that's what you want to do and is that is right for your investment strategy. So there's, those are the two things. First, you need to make sure that the rents are enough to cover your outgoings. And number two, that increasing your uh, exposure to investment properties is what you want to do as part of your savings plan. So as long as those two things fit, I think the time is right if that is your plan. Yeah, very good comment. It's all about that investment strategy and having a plan and sticking to that plan and moving forward. Another question, a couple of questions have come in around investment in Wellington specifically. Obviously, you've made comments about the security of the government jobs and government, of course, being based in Wellington. Would Wellington be the place to put an investment property in? So Wellington has had an extraordinary rise of, over the last few years, right? So we've seen the property market um, increase very strongly, both in terms of house prices and rents. Um, my sense is that as we see um, the, the next 10 years of economic growth, um, we are probably gonna see Wellington being less strong than other parts of New Zealand. And that's because once we get into past the crisis period, the focus is going to be around making sure the um, government is focused on reducing its costs, paying down its debt and all those other bits and pieces. So quite often that tends to be the, the reason why Wellington will tend to uh, be slower on the recovery than other parts of New Zealand. Having said that, um, you know, Wellington's got a very stable market. So we might go through a 10 year period of slow growth, but I think that would be healthier than the very strong growth we've seen in the last few years, when it has really put a lot of pressure on everybody. So Wellington, in my mind, remains a relatively good investment, mainly because of the presence of government, but also because of, historically, steady gradual growth over a long period of time. Just be mindful of the last few years when things got pretty heated. So it's important that you don't overpay if you're going to buy any property. Thank you. Look, we've got a good one here because we've got a lot of people listening in who are first home buyers and they are very uncertain. Should they purchase now? Should they wait? Are the prices coming down in that first home buyer market? Bearing in mind, it tends to also be the market that investors are looking in to invest in. Mm. So I think for first home buyers, it is going to be a very tough environment um, for two reasons. Um, one, there is going to be the competition from investors because it's the same type of home. 
Um, but second, I think it's really around being able to access credit. So while uh, interest rates are really low, mortgage rates are very affordable, uh, banks are being really careful about lending. So this is why first home buyers tend to get delayed during recessions. Um, even if you have your job because you're young, because you don't have such a big deposit, banks might be quite careful about how much money you lend, uh, how much they lend to you. But if you've got um, a, you know, if you've already got a, a, a mortgage, you've got it secured and it's been approved and you're confident about your job and you can afford the repayments and all those kinds of things, you should buy it. Don't think about it. The home you live in is not about an investment, right? That's your home. That's shelter. So from that perspective, as long as the decision is right for you and you can afford it, then I think it's, it's still an okay time for first-home buyers to buy the home. Somebody's come in and asked uh, any comment on the Christchurch market and possibly after Christchurch, how would you say there has been a trend to development of apartments? How do apartments, in your opinion, stack up to houses, especially maybe for a first-time investor? Yeah, look, apartments are um, absolutely fine as shelter, but they tend to be a lot more volatile because they don't have the security of the land Within, um, within, their, uh, within that sort of investment, right? So the land portion tends to be quite small. So uh, the big risks or the big issues with uh, apartment investing, as I'm sure all of you know, is in that sort of that volatility of house prices, but also there's lots of outgoings with body corporate maintenance and other things. So if you're going to buy an apartment, it's really important you understand all the outgoings because you, it might cost a lot more than a standalone home because you can defer those things which you can't in an apartment. Nothing, nothing fundamentally wrong with apartments. Personally, I prefer the low rise stuff because the body corporate fees tend to be much lower and the risks tend to be much lower as well. And any, and any comment on uh, the Christchurch market as an investment market? Um, it's a hard one because, um, you know, because of the earthquakes, uh, it has been a fundamentally changed market. Um, to me, it feels like Christchurch is normalizing, so a little bit of um, uh, conflict of interest. I've got an investment property in Christchurch out in Lincoln where I grew up and went to university, and it's not been a great investment. Rents have been going sideways there for a number of years, right, because of the kind of the post-earthquake hangover. So uh, it doesn't mean there won't be good opportunities. It's just making sure you're really focused on understanding the numbers and the investment case if you're going to make that investment. The long-term outlook for Christchurch is absolutely fine. You know, it's always had steady growth in population. It's got a good economy that's diverse and strong. So I'm not overly worried about it, but um, right now it's really that the rental yields are relatively low. Do you see the government or the businesses looking at different types of rent to own or buying options? Um, do you see anything new coming? When we're going into a recession, it's a great opportunity for governments to look at new ways to assist. Do you see anything on the horizon coming? Yeah, great question. And you're absolutely right. I think we are going to see quite a lot of that stuff happening. So in Australia, in the UK, they did a whole bunch of things like rent to own, build to rent and all that kind of stuff. So there is a lot of that talk uh, going on in New Zealand right now, but I think those are things that will be fought on for the election in September. So those things probably won't come in until later on. So just be, I think these things are useful, but um, the size of the market is quite big, right? And so these new projects are probably gonna be quite small at the margin in the beginning. So 
we will see stuff happening there, but I think they're going to start from quite small beginnings and they won't have a big impact on the overall market, probably for some decades. We're getting a lot of questions asking about the different areas around the country and how the property market is and uh, what your comments are. But I think rather than try to go through every single part um, of the country, uh, we'll get those answered later. Do you have any comments uh, where you see the interest rates moving on a long term basis? And where do you predict, um, you know, making a change? Do we set for four years, five years, 12 months and keep resetting our fixed interest rates? What's your feeling for those that are looking for some surety, especially with the flat wages that most people are experiencing just now? Good question. And I think that's a that's an issue that most people think about, right? Because a mortgage is such a big, big liability, a big thing, big cost for most people. So, you know, the caveat, of course, is that economists get their forecasts wrong all the time. So <laughs> just take it with a grain of salt. But um, everything that we're seeing in the economy suggests that interest rates are going to be low for at least five years. That's my kind of base case. In reality, I think we're probably going to be stuck with low interest rates probably for a period of about 10 years. So there is very little risk that interest rates are going to rise a lot. But for, for a lot of people, I think the challenge might be that you might have a very big mortgage relative to the incomes, and you might want to lock in some extra surety because even a small increase in mortgage rates might make it difficult for you. So when you're thinking about fixing your mortgages, I think it's less about saying, will I get a five-year or a two-year? It's more about saying, how much could I afford if interest rates were to go up? And I think when you talk to your mortgage advisor or mortgage broker, you will find that they will advise you usually to split it up into chunks so that you can plan for some sort of uh, certainty on portions of your mortgage, but also have the ability to repay some of this debt if you want to and can. Um, but I wouldn't be overly caught up in terms of getting very long duration mortgages right now because they tend to be a bit more expensive. And if you believe me, and if you think I'm correct, and interest rates are going to stay low, it's better to get some of those lower mortgage rates that are for, say, two years or whatever, and rolling them over gradually and enjoying that additional benefit. The only additional advice I'd give, especially if you're a first-time buyer or you live in your own home, if you can afford to, please keep your payments as they are now, because it will take a huge amount of the principal, and it will mean that you'll have a much bigger savings and you will have a much smaller mortgage to pay in the future. Uh, recessions and low interest environments are really, really great for getting your debt under control and you get your debt paid off. And I guess uh, a question is, if you have surplus funds, leaving it in the bank, what's your predictions are the banks going to do with those funds? And people are asking, is the share market the other alternative? Yeah, look, um, I mean, Again, uh, not personalized financial advice, so just you know, be careful with that stuff. Um, if you've got surplus funds, it's really important to keep investing as you would normally. So I think all of us should have a relatively good idea of what we want to invest in. And I sort of think about it in a few chunks, money that I want to save for the next little while, money that I want to save for my retirement, and the money I need to save for when I expect I'll get dementia, right? So those are three different chunks of money. So the stuff that's for my dementia days, those are going into stocks and shares and all that stuff. So they're very risky stuff because it doesn't matter. Over a long period of time, that'll average out. The stuff that you want to spend in the next little while, keep it relatively safe because you don't want to risk 
the whipsaws of the market because right now markets are moving around a lot. For your retirement savings, continue to contribute to your uh, KiwiSaver and your managed funds because it's all about dollar averaging. The retirement fund is not about when you invest, it's about how regularly you invest. So if you are always adding and topping up your retirement investment, you will come out better off. Numerous studies over time have shown that is the way to do it. Trying to time the market, it's really, really hard. Thank you. Look, there's a question here which is very property related. In regard to the Airbnb situation, um, do we see Airbnbs moving uh, from uh, being Airbnb properties in the tourism market and moving into the long-term rentals? Your absolutely. comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing quite a lot of that in, in some parts of the country. And um, David, you probably will have some insight into the local market as well. But certainly we've seen the number of rental Airbnb properties falling in a lot of those tourism hotspots. And that's a good thing because a lot of those uh, regional places were really struggling with the shortage of rental properties. You are correct. I'm based up in Auckland and we have a, a huge portfolio that uh, was in that short term. And you are 100% right. We have moved a, a good two thirds of those properties. Um, I guess the comment I would say there, if it's a stunning waterfront apartment or property, look, there will always be a demand. But the tourism, from my perspective, we are looking at potentially 18 months to two years before tourism will rebound to anywhere close that it was. I, I'm sure you'd agree similar. I agree. All right. Look, once again, thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this content, I appreciate if you leave your honest review on any podcast app. It helps me to improve my next episode or you can simply request any topic for me to research. Do you know any friend that may benefit from this information? Please forward this podcast to them. Otherwise, stay tuned because more good stuff coming soon. Thank you.